0: I've never been to India. I've travelled a lot, but I've never made it to the subcontinent. And so it was a thrill to speak to Eric Savage, who's spent more than a decade living in Bangalore. He did a great job in this chat of describing daily life and the charm of the controlled chaos of India. Renewed my energy to get over there. But Eric also went deep into his work at Unitas Capital, an impact investing firm that works to make capital available to a range of businesses that have a big potential for positive impact. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Tretgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. According to Eric, India is the land of the entrepreneur. And for an investor that offers a lot of opportunity and a huge potential for having an impact. We dug into capital controls, the history of microfinance, And then we wound back to Eric's early days, when he was working in finance in the US at Salomon Brothers. This is the Wall Street firm that was the subject of Michael Lewis's first book, Liars Poker, and it was the prequel to the book, The Big Short. Eric ended up at Salomon Brothers only a few years after Liars Poker was published, and we discussed this timeline, the evolution of finance towards the global financial crisis and the new era of conscious capitalism that I'm interested in and which this podcast is all about so let's get into it the show notes are on the website at johntreadgold.com and you can continue the conversation on twitter and instagram all right without further ado here's my chat with eric savage here we go to hub Australia in Sydney you're fresh off the plane from Bangalore where you live is that right that's correct yep excited to be here thanks for having me pleasure um now look India is a country I've never been to I've traveled a lot so I'd really love sort of a snapshot if you could paint the film scene of, of your morning when you walk out the door what's it like India is an amazing place so definitely
1: you need to come visit. I, I've also traveled a reasonable amount and I would say from a tourist perspective India is the most fascinating place in the world because it's a, it's a, it's a huge country like like Australia but it's also extraordinarily culturally diverse and has a, an amazing history and of course has a massive population and so it's an extremely chaotic place. But Before I moved to India a friend of mine um, I was getting advice from him whether or not to, to move there. This is 13 years ago. And he, and he said, well, when you're in India, every day when you wake up, you know you're alive. And I think that's uh, it's very true that you just have, you know, it's, it's a very young country, you know, struggling to you know, make life better for the average citizen. You know, the, the streets are chaotic. Business is, is, is chaotic. Uh, chaos is probably the, the one word that represents the country best, but it's, it's just a, it's a very vibrant, um, interesting, fun place of course has all kinds of challenges as well like like any place but the chaos works it seems you have to embrace the chaos or it'll drive you crazy and so we've we've been there more than 12 years so obviously have have learned to cope with it and and to you know actually embrace it
0: and how does that come out in in sort of business life and entrepreneurship and and i guess you know economic growth and development
1: india is a land of entrepreneurs before i moved to india i'd actually been in hong kong for 12 years and in hong kong it feels like everybody is uh you know a, a banker or a lawyer or at least it seemed in, in my world where I was whereas in India it seems like all of our friends are, are entrepreneurs and so everyone we know has kind of started a business they understand that that entrepreneurial struggle and and, and I think because in, India is not a country that has all of these like massive global brands that have come out of India so you don't have too many people working for big companies although of course all the big companies a lot of the big global companies do have offices in in Bangalore where I live but I don't tend to interact as much with those people I you know, the the work that we do, we work with entrepreneurs. So I'm with entrepreneurs all the time. And and for me, that's really fun, because you get to see people who are really, you know, putting their professional lives on the line to do something interesting to make the world a better place. And so it's, uh, it's super creative and energetic.
0: Yeah. And you tell us a bit about your investing, you're at Unitas Capital, you started at 12, 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. Who do you invest in? and, And where do you get capital from?
1: So at Unitas Capital, we're an impact-focused investment bank. Our main business is getting hired by impactful companies, companies that are improving the lives of a large number of low-income people. And we get hired for them, uh, by them, to raise capital. And we raise capital from from mainstream investors, from impact investors, um, a little bit from the development financial institutions, and then we, we also have a meaningful debt business. So we raise money from banks, as well as from global lenders who are, who are interested in that space. So, so we work across the impact sectors we do a lot in financial inclusion, so uh, SME finance, fintech, microfinance, affordable school finance, affordable housing finance, etc. And then we also raise money for companies in education, healthcare, women empowerment, agriculture, and and renewable energy, clean tech. So yeah, we work with a wide variety of companies. We have a team of 40 people on the ground in Bangalore. Our whole team is is Indian ex- except for me, and um, uh, you know, kind of a, a team that that really is, I think, very you know, excited to to use their finance experience to, to make the world a better place and work for these very inspiring entrepreneurs.
0: Yeah, and you did mention microfinance. I think, uh, you know, ever since the 80s, that's been a really powerful force. How has that evolved?
1: It's evolved in India from a relatively niche business to a pretty big business, and so you've seen a number of the microfinance companies in India have gotten banking licenses, which is a really um, high. It's in India, it's not easy. It's really difficult, actually, to get a banking license. They've, I think, in the last fifteen years, only given, um, like. 14 banking licenses and or something like that and most of those have been given to microfinance companies that have evolved from you know kind of startup microfinance companies to bigger companies so the the Indian microfinance sector is big it's a 30 billion dollar industry um, a lot of companies have have grown very rapidly become quite profitable um, quite a number four or five have gone public now so it's become a, a pretty big uh, industry that has I think penetrated very well it still remained largely credit focused focused with some insurance now that People become banks. The, those larger institutions ha, are focusing on the savings part of the the business, and some are selling other products: solar lanterns, telephones, um, two-wheel vehicles, those kind of things. But it's but it's become a big industry that I think has really um, positively improved the lives of a large number of people.
0: Mm. And as they grow in scale, do they lose touch then with the communities? You know, it was originally really that that different stage. These are the people that were unbanked and didn't have any other way to access capital. Um, as they get bigger and bigger, do they? Make maintain that connection have they lost some of their, their spark
1: I think that by and large they really have maintained that that connection um, and in India has a, a you know pretty big developed capital markets which is one of the reasons why why we set up in, in India and so moving up market wouldn't be easy for uh, for a microfinance company I think once you get a banking license then some of them tend to do a bit more you know, kind of SME lending, but they're, they're, they still have a relatively high cost of capital. And as such, they're really lending to people who aren't well banked by the formal banking sector. And, and you know, the, the cost of microfinance loans in India is cheaper than anywhere else in the world, but it's still like, you know, 20% on, on average, um, whereas in many other parts of the world it's 50, 60%, which again is in those markets much cheaper than the local money, money lenders, but obviously very expensive. So it's it's still a relatively attractive business from the microfinance company perspective but moving up market is difficult so if they to the extent they they expand they start doing affordable housing finance SME finance largely to the same customer base of low-income or, or lower middle-income people
0: and you know your background you're, you're from the US you you've worked in major financial institutions over there I wonder you know what were some of the biggest shocks that you found when you got to India what's it like doing business there
1: It was a big change. I it it was a big change on a personal basis as well. My wife and I have four children. We at the time we moved to India, we had three, and so there was all kinds of changes. Our we had three very young children. We moved there at that time, two-year-old twins and and a newborn baby, and so they were experiencing everything new for the first time, going to school for the first time, different food, different people than they'd been around, and whatnot. So the first few months were. Uh, extraordinarily stressful, and it was a, it was a difficult um, adjustment. Of course, now our kids have grown up in India, and I think that they consider themselves global citizens to some extent across multicultures. But very much Indian, and all their friends are Indian and, and whatnot. I think in terms of working in India, the bigger change for me is probably that you know before I worked at Solomon Brothers and Citigroup and worked with all of these massive uh, companies and was working in the public markets, helping people do IPOs and mergers and you know kind of big big bank deals and the and like, and now doing, you know, relatively small private market transactions. So just working with much smaller companies, smaller entrepreneurs, and instead of spending all my time meeting in big fancy Glass towers now getting out into rural areas, getting um, you know into in, into slums and and whatnot, and it's very different from that perspective. It's what I want to be doing. It's to me, it's um, it's extremely exciting. I, f- I feel very privileged, like I I have my dream job. I don't think it's anyone else's dream job, uh, for, fortunately. And then I have an, an amazing group of people that I work with, both super inspiring clients that I and my colleagues are really excited to work with, and then also just an, an amazing group of colleagues at at Unitas Capital, and so. We have much better office culture and camaraderie and um, I think both within our company as well as between our company, and our clients than I had in my uh, previous organizations.
0: Mm. And so what drove that shift? It's such a huge move. You know, that first day in Bangalore, you said, you know, there were challenges. What really, yeah, what, what should have got you on the plane?
1: Well, after I, I worked for a long time for, for Solomon Brothers and and City, and the whole time I was there, I knew that there must be something more to life than just helping these big companies kind of do better and, and make more money. And and I candidly, I felt that the work that we were doing was very replaceable by another big financial institution, as well as that the work you know the work I was personally doing while I had a specialization. My last job at City was running their. Power and Infrastructure Group for Asia, you know, certainly they, they could easily replace me and indeed did um, eas- easily replace me. I really felt there must be something more valuable I could do on, on Earth. And, and really, for me personally, I, I was just very focused on wanting to do something that has as big a social impact as possible and specifically a social impact for low-income people. And so that's really was my driving motivation. And then I, I feel very lucky I got connected to the people at, at Unitas Labs who incubated us. They already had the idea to start a, an impact focus investment bank. And so they partnered me with with their team, with Abhijit Ray and Kylie Charlton and uh, and Jester Woolley and and, and others to, you know, kind of put a business plan together for this new company, go out and raise seed capital for it and and ultimately run it. But it, it fit perfectly with
0: what I was looking to do as well as with the experience I had having worked in the capital markets for a while. And, you know, 12, 13 years ago, impact investing didn't have the profile that it does now. Were you aware of sort of the terminology when you were at City? Did you sort of recognise that there was another way or did you just sort of feel an itch and you needed to explore and it sort of evolved slowly?
1: Yeah. So at, at that time, I'm pretty sure the term impact investing didn't exist uh, at all. I was very aware of microfinance. So I had, I think, a, a year or so before Muhammad Yunus won the, the Nobel Prize. and um, But even before that, I'd, I'd, I'd kind of come across it in some articles and started reading up on it and, and whatnot. And then before I moved to India, I spent... One year at the Kennedy School at Harvard, they have a midlife crisis program. It's a one-year master's uh, program for people who've been working for a while. And I spent the year there really researching uh, microfinance, investing in impactful companies, and uh, you know, kind of the emerging markets and, and whatnot. So I was, I was super focused on this industry and had tried to network with as many people as possible. Um, and the professor who I did a lot of research for, Guy Stewart, is the one who introduced me to the people at Unitas, and so that would have been very helpful in the transition into this world.
0: Yeah, I think that's a story we hear quite a lot. Mm. You know, we have the high-flying financiers that just have that itch that something's not quite right. Mm. And great to hear that somewhere like Harvard has the uh, midlife crisis course. And, Mm. And I think that's a really good way. I mean, you know, going back to study is a really good way to reset, you know, retrain and really think deeply about why you're doing it all. And, you know, it was obviously the right decision for you. And, I mean, getting back to operating in India, you know, in terms of I've got experience in Indonesia and there, there's some real challenges in, in for impact investors because some industries, um, foreigners can't invest. You know, there's protectionism, there's Byzantine systems that are probably designed to make it difficult. What's the playing field like in India? Do they appreciate the need for external capital? Do they even need external capital, such a huge population? Perhaps they've got enough internal supply.
1: Yeah, so there probably is enough money in India that could easily fund these businesses that are helping um, tackle India's you know largest problems. That being said, that right now that money is not being channeled in that way. So the vast majority of the capital that's being invested in into impact businesses is foreign capital. It's changing and it's slowly changing. You're getting more families and a few institutions in India, but if you if you look overall at the private equity and venture capital market in India. So the private markets in India, they're dominated by foreign capital. So there are lots of successful, good, homegrown private equity and venture capital firms in India that have raised big firms, some in the billions of dollars. Most of that money is foreign capital. And so they're raising money from Europe and the U.S. and, and, and elsewhere. So there there is a need for foreign capital. Whereas I would say like on the We've raised a little uh, more than $2.5 billion for our clients over the last 11 years. Two-thirds of that is equity. The equity, the majority, is foreign capital, whereas the debt that we've raised has come primarily from Indian banks, although a a good amount from cross-border lenders as well. So slowly the domestic capital markets are picking up, but the the long-term investing is still primarily from uh, foreign sources.
0: Uh, How is the ease of access to foreign capital?
1: So for the foreign investors coming in, it's um, on the equity side. You need to put structures together, but that's a very tried and uh, trusted approach, and so so it's relatively easy to do that. On the debt side, it's it's one of those things that it's you know more typical of emerging markets where the what is allowed one year will change in terms of what's allowed the next year, and it, and it's it's significantly more complicated. I think you know we we've done a little bit of work in in Indonesia, and there um, there are quite a few more structural problems in terms of doing that. I think the other big difference as far as I'm aware in India is just a land of of entrepreneurs and from what I know from Indonesia the it's it's not as much. And so um, finding, you know, great entrepreneurs is relatively straightforward in India and, and of course you've seen lots of Indian, you know, business people go on to the currently the CEO of Google and Microsoft and Pepsi and a number of companies are are all are all Indian. So I I think India's done a great job of developing leadership talent. Probably to some extent the you because you have so many entrepreneurs there. And of course you have lots of great entrepreneurs who have built businesses like Infosys and Wipro and Bandan Bank and and others.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think you know there's that danger of, of lumping so many different countries in the emerging market kind of bucket, but they're obviously really different and some, you know, really high transaction costs and you sort of need to reskill and you need to really, you know, work hard and get the right consultants to understand different countries and, and different landscapes. And you know, so often in these conversations I try to to talk to impact investors and pull out why Australians tend to be quite hesitant to invest offshore. You know, we're in this neighborhood in Asia, the Pacific, Indonesia, you know, and so many countries in the Pacific. Uh, but most of the impact investors are from the US and Europe. Uh, and so while, you know, it's not sort of fair to ask you about why um, there is that hesitation, but I just think it's an interesting sort of factor that there are those costs. But in terms of impact, the rewards are huge. There's so much potential for that impact return. Um, is that the way you guys say it?
1: Yeah, certainly we, you know, especially working in a, in a, in a market like India, there's such a massive low-income population. I think when I moved to India 12, 13 years ago, there was, at that time, there were more than half a billion people who were who were living below the poverty line, below the, um, you know, World Bank, $1.90 a day line. Now, obviously not related to me, but the, the that number has shrunk in half um, over the last 12 years because of the economic growth in India. But despite that, there's still a huge market, almost 300 million people that have very, very little. And then above that, there's a an aspiring group that's moving toward the middle class. But it's still like a massive market that's completely poorly served for healthcare, for education, for financial services, you know, for energy, et cetera. And so you have this huge market. It's not always easy to address, but if you have a, a good product and the ability to sell that product to this low-income population, you have the chance to build a very, very large um, business. And so I think that the fundamentals are there to build you know, highly scalable, impactful businesses. And we've seen that. I mean, we've, we've been able to raise a good amount of capital for our clients because these are really good businesses. And so as, as I said earlier, the the majority of the investors we're working for are pretty mainstream investors. And so while it's really nice that there's a, a huge impact from what they're doing, that's not why they're investing. They're just investing because these are really good financial investments. And we facilitated, I was just put, getting the data together because I'm speaking at the summit tomorrow, we facilitated 38 exits for investors over the last you know five, six years. And the, the median IRR for those those investments is 38%, so which is an extraordinarily high IRR. Now naturally data is often misleading. The companies and investments where people make exits on on average would be doing better than the ones that they don't, but it's just indicative that you have a broad-based, you know, very high returns because people have found a way to build business models that can scale profitably serving this, you know, kind of mass, uh, low-income
0: population. Very good. And uh, in my preparation, looking at your bio, you did spend some time at Salomon Brothers. I think it was in the 90s. But I wonder if you came across Michael Lewis. He, uh, he wrote Liars Poker, was the prequel to The Big Short. He might have been there in the 80s. Did you Did you... Uh, cross paths?
1: Yeah, so he had already left before I came. And so unfortunately, I've never met him. I've, I've read, um, certainly everyone I think at Solomon had read Liar's Poker at that time. It had been published about a year before I joined. And and I've read, I think I've read almost everything that he's written. So I'm, I'm a big, big fan. And he's obviously an amazing storyteller. I think, I think the culture he described there was it was pretty true as to what it was. It was just a very entrepreneurial place. It was very much a meritocracy. It was, a, Solomon was a fun place to, to, to work, but definitely a you worked really hard there.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think it's such an interesting, I guess, timeline from, you know, the 80s were the the cliche of, of greed is good and, and lots of excess and the way that Liars Poker rolled into the Big Short, which was the buildup of the, the sort of mortgage crisis that all blew up in 2008. And in some ways that's led me to where I am to with this podcast, talking about impact investing, talk about social enterprise and, and a different path for finance. That's more equal. That you know factors in environmental uh, values and and environmental constraints. So I guess was that part of the path for you? And, and do you feel confident that um, while we don't want to you know destroy entrepreneurialism and the meritocracy and and the, the hunger and energy people have to to build um, and the drive, but at the same time, are we shifting away from the individual greed that was sort of so damaging?
1: I wish it were the case that that we are doing so. I think the the financial markets have proven to be really bad at self-regulating. Probably many markets are, but definitely it's the case in the finance market. And that, and news. Actually, I, th- I think Solomon was very, um, in a negative way, instrumental in this. And that back in the, in the eighties, Solomon changed from being a private partnership to being a publicly traded company. And I think that was a. F- big moment in the capital market's history, and that all of a sudden you had, you went from a, a really important firm um, investing its partnership money to investing public money. And then also from people getting rewarded in the long term as a partner in the firm versus then switching to becoming rewarded on an annual basis through bonuses. And so all of a sudden you had people getting rewarded in the short term for decisions that played out over the very long term. And I think that was a really important part of what led up to the um, you know, mortgage crisis that took down the global markets back in back in two thousand eight, and I think unfortunately a lot of those th- situations still. Exist in the market today, and in, in the U.S., you have you know budding crises in the in the government debt, where you know spending just keeps increasing under every president that that comes along. You have a, a massive student debt um, crisis in our hands. You have completely unfunded pension plans across the across the U.S. Very unlike what I, my understanding of what you have here in in Australia, and so you you have really a short-term outlook that is pervasive in the in the political system in the U.S. So I'm very concerned about the way that the capital market. Markets are moving in that arena. I mean, on the on the more positive side, you definitely have a, you know at very important uh, levels, you have a huge focus on on the environment, on on climate, and, and of course the impact investing and sustainability is increasing dramatically. I have, I have the privilege of being a fellow at the Aspen Institute and their global finance. Uh, a leaders fellowship. And in that in that fellowship, when I joined three years ago, and I'm an outlier being somebody who runs a small uh, impact firm, whereas most of the other people are really senior at very large global financial institutions. Three years ago when, when we started, people were kind of struggling to understand what impact was, and there was a very small focus on sustainability, I would say. We just had a, a class reunion a month and a half ago, and now it's just front and center for all of these very senior people at really large financial institutions. They're super focused on climate. They're super focused on sustainability. It's just like mind blowing the change that has happened in that and that time period. So that that gives me some hope.
0: Yeah, that's a really good insight, and and good to have some optimism there. Um, now, look, I have to I have to let you go. I can't take too much of your time today. You're in Sydney for the Impact Investing Summit. That's on this week, so uh, yeah, people can. Catch you there and uh, and get some further details. Uh, but before you go, I'd love to get a book recommendation. You did mention one before we, uh, before we started today. Is it something you've read more than once? So I believe it's, it's published pretty recently.
1: Yeah, so I've, I've just read it once. So I've reread parts of it. There's a fantastic book that just came out actually last week. It's, it's called How Money Became Dangerous. The author is Chris Farelis, who actually worked with me at Solomon Brothers uh, way back when. And so it's, it's, I think, in the tradition of Michael Lewis, who we discussed earlier, is, has some just amazing stories, some of them really fascinating. But it, it kind of talks about over the last 30 years how the financial markets have developed and how all these, you know, kind of problems have crept up. And then I think importantly, it, it does that through really engaging story so it's so it's a fun read but at the same time it talks about how we can possibly overcome some of these and so chris who wrote the book had been instrumental for example in the um, bankruptcy of orange county los angeles and in, in the u.s and they and they overcame the bankruptcy there a couple of decades ago and you know kind of sharing those lessons and other lessons um over time so so highly recommend that book uh how money became dangerous
0: yeah sounds great very present very timely thank you
1: my pleasure thanks a lot for having me on